I'm reading a passage of scripture that most of you will recognize. It's found in the 10th chapter of Luke. And the record begins at verse 25. Here we're told, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly, do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, asked Jesus, and just who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him. And whatever more you need, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves, asked Jesus. And the lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. One of the major thoroughfares of the ancient world was the road that ran from the city of Jericho near the Jordan River, about 15 miles to the west to Jerusalem, high in the mountains. Often that road was clogged with Roman soldiers marching along in cadence, the bright mid-eastern sun reflecting on the bright edges of their swords, by traders traveling in caravans, hurrying to market, irritated by the slower pace of the pedestrians that retarded them, ordinary people visiting their families, the curious who were just passing through on their way to other places, and religious pilgrims coming to the holy city of the Jews from all over the Roman Empire for the religious festivals required by their law. And because many who traveled this way were heavy laden with goods and money, and because much of the land through which the Jericho Road passed was barren and isolated, the Jericho Road was also a common haunt for thieves. And in fact, until fairly recently in the history of the Middle East, this road was taken only by those who were accompanied by soldiers or by armed guards of their own hiring. And this is the setting for one of our Lord Jesus' most familiar stories, that of the Good Samaritan. I'd like to talk with you about its setting, about its detail, about its nature, and about its application to life.
The setting for this story in space was probably the same road. It's fair to assume that the events recorded in the Gospel of Luke are found in good historical order. And immediately after this conversation with the lawyer, we find Jesus in the village of Bethany, which was on the Jericho Road. This means then that as Jesus told this story, he was passing along the road that was the setting for his story, and many of those with him probably knew the nervousness of having passed that way, and some of them may even have had violent stories of their own to tell. But more importantly is the setting of this story in terms of the public reaction to the public ministry of our Lord Jesus. If you're a student of the Gospels, you know that from shortly after the beginning of his public work to its very end, Jesus was hounded by men who were frightened of his rising popularity. As we read through the Gospels, we see the rising tide of their animosity toward him and of their plotting among themselves to be rid of him. He healed on the Sabbath. And rather than rejoicing with those who were delivered, they criticized him for violating their law. He offered the forgiveness of sins to a crippled man, and they challenged his right to do so. They sent agents to spy on him. They sent soldiers to arrest him, and they brought questions to him. Some of those questions arose spontaneously in the heat of a discussion of some subject. Some of them were carefully crafted behind closed doors, but all of them were intended to embarrass or to discredit Jesus and to impress others with what his enemies assumed to be their superior knowledge of religious matters. And such appears to be the case in our text. A lawyer asked a question. A lawyer is a student and a practitioner of the law, but in this case, the law would be that of the Old Testament. Elsewhere, these are called scribes. He stood up, we are told, and he asked Jesus a question. The question was an excellent question. His reason for asking it was not. But he asked what is arguably the most important person that any thoughtful person must ask. What must I do to have eternal life? I hope that you've asked that question. We live in a culture that takes eternity for granted. When I entered the ministry years ago and began to become involved with apparently unbelieving families at the time of death and planning funeral services, I lived in dread of their asking me, where do you think Uncle John is now? I no longer dread that question. Nobody has ever asked that question. In all of the years that I've been sitting with non-Christian families planning funerals for someone in their family, no one has ever asked about what follows the grave. Our culture takes death for granted. It takes heaven for granted. It takes God for granted. And that is not faith. That is presumption. Do you have the answer to this lawyer's question? If he were to ask you, what must I do to have eternal life? What would you tell him? If you don't have an answer to that question, maybe at some point we should have a conversation. 
Jesus answered by referring the man to Scripture. Jesus refers us to the Scripture when we have problems with life, when we have questions in life. Jesus believed the Scriptures. He was thoroughly acquainted with the Scriptures. He expects his followers to not only believe, but to be familiar with the Scriptures. And thus he asked this student of the Scriptures, what do the Scriptures say? How do you understand them? And the man answered with a question that was popular in that time. This was not his own invention. It was a thing that was being said commonly. But he answered by quoting two of the laws already in the law. Two laws that, in fact, are arguably the foundation for almost all of the other laws that God gave to Israel. The first was that you will love the Lord your God with all of your being. And the second is you will love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus agreed with him. And he said to him, if you do this, you will live. Up to this point in the conversation, we have no reason to question the motivation or the character of the man asking the question. His manner seems respectful. His question is at the very heart of all serious religious inquiry. But then he asks a follow-up question that lets us look deep into his soul. And there we see that this man was full of that self-love that is native to the flesh and for which true religion only is the antidote. The reason for the second question, asked in the presence of a crowd he was hoping to impress, was not to gain a better understanding of eternal truth, but rather it was, according to Luke, that he might justify or that he might excuse himself. And his question was, and just who is this neighbor that the law requires me to love? Jesus answer to that story, or that question, is the story of the Good Samaritan. If you grew up in the church, you know this story. You've heard it all of your life. You've heard sermons based upon it. You've read devotional articles about it. You've gone through it in detail in Sunday school. But if you're a young Christian, or if you're on the outside of our faith, looking in with some curiosity, you may not be familiar with the details of this story. In this story, the Lord sets the stage by describing the experience of a traveler on the Jericho Road who was waylaid by thieves. He evidently resisted them with the result that they beat him severely, took everything that he had with him, including most of his clothing, and left him barely hanging on to life by the side of the road. The curtain rises on this drama as we follow the words of our Lord. And at first we see nothing but a barren landscape and a little bit of the road that runs through it. In the silence, we become barely aware of feeble groans coming from the brush alongside the road, but we see nothing. And then as we watch, a lone figure enters the stage from the side. His clothing identifies him as one of the priests who served in the temple. He, too, hears the moans of the wounded man, ventures closer to investigate. He sees the victim, takes a quick measure of the situation, looks up and down the road to see whether there are any witnesses to his indifference, and seeing none, he crosses to the other side of the road and walks quickly away 
in the manner of studied nonchalance. We watch the empty stage, and after a few moments, another man appears, coming from the same direction as the priest. This is a Levite, we are told, one of those who assisted the priests in their services in the temple. He, too, hears the feeble cries of the wounded man, goes to the edge of the road and looks down upon him. And for reasons that are not given, he also glances up and down the road to see whether there are any to see. And then he also hurries on. And again, the stage is left empty and quiet. But then a third man comes along. We're told that this man is not a Jew, but a Samaritan. He is a citizen of Samaria, which lay to the north of the land of Jerusalem, a people despised by the Jews. He also sees the man in need, but unlike the two before him, stoops to help the injured man, places him on his own animal, takes him away to an inn for safety, and then leaves money with the innkeeper to ensure his care. This is the story, and that it has profound meaning for all who would live lives that are pleasing and useful to God is obvious. Careful students of the Bible review this story that Jesus told, and there's a question that inevitably arises. It's an academic question. It doesn't affect the implication of the story itself. But once we've asked it, it becomes one of those matters it's hard to put aside. And the question is, is this a parable or is this a piece of real history? Was Jesus describing four real men or was he telling a story that he invented to illustrate a point? It's a hard question to answer and for that reason I've called my sermon the story of the Good Samaritan rather than the parable or the history of the Good Samaritan. And those trying to decide the matter will notice that in the Gospel of Luke, there are 13 stories that Jesus used to illustrate a religious or a moral point of one kind or another. And we notice as we read through Luke that seven of those 13 stories are clearly identified as parables, and two others are in a context that makes us believe they probably are also parables. That leaves four of these stories unidentified. And all four of them, like the story of the Good Samaritan, begin simply, there was a certain man who did thus and so, which gives the impression that what follows is real and not fictitious or imaginary. But each of these stories contains language that makes us question their historicity. For example, in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus describes the victim of the thieves as being half dead. I remind you that Jesus was a man who used language with precision and with understanding. A family is waiting outside a surgical area in a hospital. They've been there for three hours. The outcome of the surgery is unquestioned or is questionable. They're very, very anxious, and eventually a doctor steps out of the area with a clipboard in his hand, a worried expression on his face, and they ask, how is he? How is he? And the doctor says, well, he's half dead. That doesn't say much, does it? I opened my Merck manual, and I don't find half dead 
in there as a legitimate medical diagnosis. If a man's normal heart rate is 72 beats per minute, is he half dead if it reaches 36? If his at-rest blood pressure is 120 over 80, is he half dead when it drops to 60 over 40? This is a phrase that you and I use commonly. We all mean by it that someone's in really bad shape, but it literally has no meaning whatsoever. And Jesus was a man to whom words were important. The speaker here is a man who claimed to be God in the flesh. This is the one who assigned such trustworthiness to his own claims and teachings as to allow him to say, my word will never pass away. His use of the common phrase half dead creates the impression of the possibility that the story in which the phrase occurs is something other than real history. And in verse 31, you may have noticed, he said, by chance, a certain priest passed by. This is the same Jesus who declares that the tiniest of birds does not die apart from the express will of his Father in heaven. This is the Lord who said that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things and to be killed. This is the same Jesus who said that offenses must come, but woe be to him by whom the offense comes. This Jesus is the Son of God. He is the co-creator of the universe. He is the Lord of history. He is the firstborn over all creation and the one who said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This Jesus doesn't believe in chance. If this is history, the priest came by because God had decreed that he should, and chance has nothing to do with it. And yet in this story, Jesus says, now, by chance, a certain priest came down. And this too, I believe to be evidence that this is not a story of real people and real events, but one invented by the Lord and used to illustrate a great religious and a great moral principle, making it a parable, although the historian does not identify it as such. Is the story of the Good Samaritan real history or a parable? I think you would agree with me that in the final analysis, it really doesn't matter. Whether the characters are real or fictitious, whether the events are true or imaginary, the point is the point that the Lord used this story to illustrate, and that should be the focus of our attention. And that brings us to consider the application of the story, and there's more than one of these. One of its targets is obviously human prejudice. Because of our fallen nature, because every one of us is born in the likeness of Adam and remains a sinner even though we're redeemed by Jesus Christ, and because of our excessive love for ourselves, we tend to assess others on the basis of who and what we are. These prejudices express themselves in the form of degrading jokes we tell about others. They appear as critical thoughts and as judgmental statements. The ground of my prejudices is me. My gender, my generation, my racial identity, my ethnic background, my school, my church, my work, 
the kind of music I enjoy, my favorite activities, the kind of food I like to eat. The list goes on and on and on. Each category, not only identifying who I am, but becoming a standard by which I'm likely to judge other people and find them wanting. The Jews of Jesus' day were strongly prejudiced against the Samaritans. Their prejudice went back at least a thousand years in history. And like some of our prejudices, it found some solid ground in the past. Through most of their history, most of the people represented by the Samaritans were indeed a people religiously inferior to the Jews. But not all of them. And that seems to be a part of the point that Jesus was making. You can't paint a people all the same color all with the same brush, because in each group of people, there are exceptions to what we know or believe about the whole. The New Testament makes it very clear that the Lord's statement, other sheep I have which are not of this fold, included a few Samaritans. Jesus making a Samaritan the hero of this moral story is very significant. It's interesting to wonder what this story would be like if Jesus were telling it today in this church instead of then along the Jericho Road. There would still be a victim, although the road would not be Jericho, it would be Saginaw or Richfield. And the first two men to stop individually to look at this man and then hurry on, not wanting to get their hands dirty with his needs, would not be religious uh, Jewish religious leaders, but they would be Presbyterian. The first man would be an elder in the Presbyterian church, a teaching elder or a ruling elder. The second man might be one of its deacons. But in the Lord's story, their indifference would be identical to that of the priest and the Levites in the original version. And then we have to guess whom Christ would make the hero of this great moral drama. It would not be another Presbyterian. In this story, three people came by, a Jew, a Jew, and then a non-Jew, a Samaritan. So in our story, there would be a Presbyterian and a Presbyterian and then a non-Presbyterian of some kind. It would probably be someone that Presbyterians are not known to appreciate. Someone we're not quite sure is entitled to call himself a Christian. Or if he does minimally qualify for this most beautiful of all titles, he's someone whose theology or social views or worship style places his wisdom in question to us. That man might be a Pentecostal or a Roman Catholic. He might be a high church Episcopalian or a Nazarene. It might be the man who visits a church with a diamond stud in his cheek or the young woman carrying her baby with no wedding band on her finger. It might be the woman in the shabby clothing or the man with the prison record. Whoever it would be, if Jesus were telling this story today in our church, the hero would be someone that we are inclined as middle-class, nicely-dressed Presbyterian Christians not to be entirely comfortable in the presence of. Surely, many who heard this original story were offended that Jesus would place a Samaritan in its starting role 
and were disgusted with him for it. But just as surely there must have been a few who were deeply and strangely moved by this story and went away praying for wisdom to understand its significance for their lives. These are those rare folks of whom the Lord was able to say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we mull over this story, may Christ be able to say that of us. This story also has to do with the nature of true religion. Let's be very careful to note that Jesus was not approving the religion of the Samaritans. He was not saying that this man's religion is better than the Jews' religion because look at the good works that it produced. We never hear Jesus say what we occasionally hear in the church, doesn't matter what you believe, it's important that you be sincere. Jesus sent his disciples out into an already religious world with the message that he alone is the light of the world. His teachings and the scriptures in general are filled with the idea that true religion is first of all and above all else a set of ideas that have their foundation and their source in the mind of God. No person, no deed is good in the eyes of God that is not a product of those truths. And the church is continually warned in the scriptures against those who would teach false doctrine. Today, Christian missionaries are carrying the torch of the gospel to lands dominated by other religions. And the reason is not simply that Christianity is a better religion. It is that Christianity represents the only way that God and his mercy can be known. Jesus said, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. What the Lord is saying in this story is that true religion is much more than true doctrine. And in that regard, I'd like you to think with me for a moment about what this Samaritan, real or imagined, was doing near the city of Jerusalem. We can be pretty sure that he hadn't gone there to visit his grandmother because his grandmother and all the rest of his family would have been Samaritans living in Samaria. We can be pretty sure he wasn't on a bus tour of the Holy Land. We can be pretty sure that he wasn't there doing business because a Samaritan lady is quoted in the fourth chapter of John as saying, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And that leaves only one possibility and that this Samaritan had gone to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem to worship the God of the Jews. In the ancient world, we find many instances where the high monotheism and the lofty moral ideals of the Christian religion appealed to pagans in the world. They came to the temple. They came to the synagogues. They were among those who first heard and responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The religion of this man was far closer to being true than we might otherwise expect by his ethnic identity. But what Jesus is saying here is that true religion is much more than a knowledge of the truth. It involves necessarily the practice of that truth. In our Wednesday evening Bible study, we've just begun a look at the New Testament book of James written by a brother of our Lord Jesus himself. And there's a section in that book in the second chapter that deals with the issue of faith and works. 
James cries out to the priest and the Levite in his brother's story, Show me your faith apart from your works. And the Samaritan, without saying a word, says, I show you my faith by my works. And this is our calling in Jesus Christ. A well-ordered, finely polished theology is a beautiful thing, but it isn't enough. Our religion isn't worth a plug nickel to the God who has saved us if it is not impacting our character and if it is not visible in our lives. Last week, we read from the second chapter of Ephesians that by grace you have been saved through faith and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If the story of the Good Samaritan is real history, then we have to view it knowing that it was no accident that this stranger fell among thieves. It was an event like those that occasionally befall us, that God ordained before he created the universe according to the wise counsel of his perfect will, an event intended to bring glory to his name and to be for the good of his people. For the Good Samaritan, it was one of those good works prepared beforehand that he should walk in them. As we take leave of this place and one another and venture back out into the world, let's be sure to be ever watchful for those opportunities for good that God created beforehand, that we should walk in them. They will be before us. They will be beside us along the side of the road. Paul wrote to Timothy, be ready in season and out of season. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so very grateful that you sent your Son to give his life, to redeem our souls from sin, and to assure their eternal security. We rejoice in that knowledge, but help us to understand, our God, that this isn't the end of our experience with you. It's but the beginning that you call us to believe things and to be things and to do things for your honor and for your glory. We pray as we leave this place and venture back out into the world, it will not be with the indifference of the priest or the callousness of the Levite, but rather with the love and the willingness to help of this good Samaritan. In Jesus' name, amen. Our closing...